This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Matthew Luxmore. I'm a correspondent based in Ukraine for the Wall Street Journal. And I'm the author of the Guardian Long Read titled Poles Apart, The Bitter Conflict Over a Nation's Communist History. The article is about the way that Poland's history, and in particular its communist legacy, had at the time become a flashpoint with Russia, which was seeking to bolster the legacy of its role in fighting fascism in World War II, and later, as it describes it, liberating Eastern Europe from fascism. I grew up in Poland and I always remembered as a child walking past these gargantuan communist monuments in Warsaw called Monuments of Gratitude. They were in many ways an embodiment of Moscow's abiding influence in the region. And there was a growing push to get rid of them that was in turn evidence of the extent to which uh, the mood in Poland had changed. When I began to report from Russia as a journalist and cover the annexation of Crimea in 2014, I saw how memory of World War II was being harnessed as a kind of symbolic foundation for Russia's actions in Ukraine, justifying the sham referendum that led to Crimea's annexation as kind of a way to protect Russian speakers from what Moscow called the Nazis ruling Ukraine. Very much the narrative that the Kremlin is using to justify the full-scale war taking place today. What we're seeing at the moment is this campaign by Russia to as it would put it, defend its role in World War II, which Russia believes is undermined by the West or not recognized to the extent that it should be. It's reached really dangerous levels today. The themes that were covered in this article, I think, explain in many ways why this narrative was growing so entrenched in Russia and why the state was so keen to roll it out because in many ways it would be used much later as justification for far, far worse crimes that we're seeing today. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. Poles Apart. The Bitter Conflict Over a Nation's Communist History. By Matthew Luxmore. In September 2013, the Polish city of Legnica was preparing to host a reunion of former Soviet officers who had served in the city and left after the Soviet Union fell. 
The centerpiece of the celebrations would be a monument in the main square showing two soldiers, a Pole and a Russian, locked in a handshake. On their shoulders sat a small girl, her gaze fixed on the Russian. When it was unveiled in 1951, the monument had been described in the local press as an expression of the Polish people's limitless gratitude to their liberators, of inseparability and eternal friendship with the Soviet Union. In the middle of the night before the reunion event, Piotr Borodacz, a 25-year-old Polish nationalist, gathered with several friends on the square and doused the monument of gratitude in red paint. On its base, they scrawled the symbol of the National Radical Camp, a Polish pre-war fascist movement that was resurrected after the fall of communism. Red was the colour of the communism Borodacz despised and of the blood of Poles persecuted by the communist regime. Hours later, Borodacz stood beside the defaced monument to address a nationalist rally. They told us that the Soviets are a brother nation, he said to about a hundred supporters, and today, in the name of unity, they tell us to play with the butchers at a feast, to call our occupiers friends. Waving Polish flags and banners of the far-right all-Polish youth, the protesters marched through town, congregating before a stage on which a folk band was performing songs for the reunion event. From trees, instead of leaves, communists will be hanging, they chanted, drowning out the music. At 6am the following day, police officers stormed into Borodacz's apartment. He was handcuffed and driven to the police station, held for 48 hours and ordered to pay for the monument to be cleaned. His laptop, camera and mobile phone were confiscated. For the next four days, as festivities continued and Russian pop bands were welcomed into town, police stood watch beside the vandalised statue. That was a different time in Poland. Two years later, in 2015, Law and Justice, PIS, was elected with the first outright parliamentary majority in the country's post-communist history. Since then, the Nationalist Party has seized control of state media and portrayed Poland as a country assailed by malign outside forces. It has announced a political revolution aimed at wiping out the corrosive influence of the venal communist collaborators it accuses of seizing power when Poland regained independence in 1989. And it has mounted a campaign to erase the communist legacy entirely, ridding Poland's streets of the names of former communists and its squares and roundabouts of the hundreds of monuments of gratitude put up for the 600,000 Soviet soldiers estimated to have died fighting the Nazis on Polish territory. In communist times, these soldiers were seen as liberators. Today, the totalitarian regime whose uniforms they wore is being equated with Nazi occupation. That narrative has helped revive a story of Polish defiance and heroism at a time when many see their national identity threatened by the forces of globalization. But it also taps into a well of historical pain and animosity, reigniting conflicts that have lain dormant for years. The Soviet Union liberated Poland from the Nazis, opening the gates of concentration camps and freeing thousands of Jews. But it brought with it a communist system that crushed all domestic opposition 
executed leaders of the wartime resistance and imposed a totalitarian order aimed at indoctrinating successive generations with unquestioning gratitude towards the USSR. For millions of Poles, 1945 brought a new occupation under a different name. For others, it brought salvation and social advancement. Legnice, a small city near the German border, is a microcosm of that rift. After the Red Army swept across the region in 1945, driving German troops back towards Berlin, the city became known as Little Moscow, the largest of several dozen Soviet bases constructed along Poland's western border. Some residents recall acts of kindness by Soviet officers or enduring friendships with their wives. Others, like Borodach, want all traces of that period destroyed. The last Soviet soldier departed Legnice in 1993, but the monument of gratitude remained, inflaming divisions in a community riven by its post-war past. This November, Poland will celebrate the centenary of its rebirth as a state in 1918, which followed more than a century of partition by imperial powers. Law and justice has heralded the inception of a new Polish state shorn of all relics of communist rule and a new set of anti-Soviet heroes is now being placed on pedestals. Russia is incensed. It accuses Poland of violating mutual cooperation treaties signed in the 1990s that guarantee the protection and upkeep of historical sites. But while the Kremlin warns of retaliation, law and justice is forging ahead. In March this year, Legnice's most divisive landmark was dismantled, Borodach, who had been arrested for defacing it just five years earlier, stood on the main square to celebrate what he sees as a resurgent Poland exorcising the ghosts of its past. But the toppling of its monuments is only the most visible part of the battle that Poland is waging over its identity as a nation, amid a resurgent nationalism that is pitting its government against the European Union and endangering the country's EU membership. Increasingly, this battle is setting pole against pole. One evening in August 2014, Kinga Zazulak, a Polish amateur historian, was browsing the web in her Wroclaw apartment when an article caught her attention. A Red Army monument in the nearby town of Mikolin had fallen into disrepair, she read and authorities were debating its demolition. In the days that followed, she wondered what she could do to help save the monument, a towering obelisk topped with a Soviet red star. She happened upon the Facebook page of Kursk, a Polish non-profit organisation that renovates Soviet monuments and cemeteries, and sent a message to Jerzy Tech, Kursk's director, asking if there was anything he could do. Tech promptly replied, promising he would look into it. As a former soldier in the Communist Polish People's Army and an avowed socialist, Tedge laments the erosion of Poland's Soviet-era heritage. A mild-mannered man with a receding hairline, he retains, at 50, a profound loyalty to the Red Army, who saved his mother and her family from the Nazis. Army service has left its imprint on this working-class Pole. He speaks in military jargon, calls himself Korsk's commander and dons his old army uniform, to unveil each new cemetery and monument he has repaired. He is driven by a nostalgia for the past, 
for the sense of security he felt as part of a powerful Soviet-led military bloc. The pace of his life is frantic. He is constantly on the road, traversing the length and breadth of Poland in his small grey Citroen, visiting dilapidated monuments and cemeteries, and meeting local officials to request permission to restore them. But every so often, Tetsch retreats for days on end to the tranquility of Sormovka, the village in northern Poland where he grew up, and where he and his younger brother Adam, one of his five siblings, run a 20-hectare farm and keep bees. It is here that, as children, Tetsch and his friends would build wooden guns, dress up as Red Army soldiers and play war. At 18, he was able to fulfil his dream and join the army, a place where he developed the deep distrust towards the West that he still feels today. Tetsch launched Kursk in 2008 in a bid to repair several abandoned communist-era bunkers near Katowice. He named the organisation after the Russian city where the largest tank battle of the Second World War took place. Over the past decade, he has renovated more than 40 Red Army monuments with approval from local authorities, to whom he files a request prior to purchasing the necessary materials and drawing up plans. He has secured the backing of powerful figures in the Russian government and a regular stream of donations, including from charities close to the Kremlin. He has also become a regular on Russian state media, which portrays him as an ordinary Pole fighting historical revisionism in the face of an uncompromising government. Tedj regularly travels to Moscow, driving through Lithuania and Latvia. It is a long journey, 18 hours, with stops to nap in the back seat. But it saves money and allows him to meet sponsors and veterans' associations and call on the many Russians who contact him via social media for information about relatives lost in the war. In 2016, a Russian TV journalist, Anna Zakarian, reached out to Tetsch for help locating the grave of her grandfather who went missing in Poland. The two connected over a common respect for the Red Army. They became a couple and Zakarian is now the official representative of Kursk in Russia. When he heard about the Mikolin monument, Tetsch contacted local authorities and secured permission to begin work. But this renovation posed a particular challenge. Trees had sprouted through the cement base, allowing rainwater to seep through the cracks, freezing in winter months and breaking through its foundation. The stairs leading to the 20-metre obelisk, exposed for years to the elements, were disintegrating. The project took two years and cost 20,000 zloty, 4,000 pounds. Helped by volunteers from across Poland, Tetsch ripped out the weeds, repaved the stairs, laid new insulation, repaired the road leading to the monument and repainted the red star that crowns it. He unveiled the renovated monument at a ceremony on the 22nd of June 2017, the 76th anniversary of Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union. Soviet war songs played as a light breeze swayed two flags, Polish and Russian, mounted high. Members of the Russian diplomatic mission watched on. You know, dear Russian friends, that we will never forget what your people did for our nation, Tetsch said in heavily accented Russian that your people, at the cost of their blood, returned our country, Poland, to the map and returned to Polish territory the lands we stand on today. But even as he spoke, Tetsch knew his work had likely been in vain. 
law and justice had been in power almost two years. Railing against the communist collaborators, the party accuses of stalling Poland's transition from communism, it had announced the abolition of the Third Republic, the independent Polish state inaugurated in 1989. The decommunization Poland never completed would pave the way for a new Fourth Republic cleansed of all vestiges of Soviet power. This meant all reminders of that hated system had to disappear. That same morning, as Tech prepared to address the crowd in his People's Army uniform, the Polish parliament passed legislation banning the propagation of communism or any other totalitarian system. It ordered the removal of all monuments of gratitude to the Soviets, except those on cemetery grounds. The newly restored statue in Mikolin was one of those slated to go. The monuments of gratitude are the most conspicuous reminders of communism. Over more than four decades, hundreds were erected in Bulgaria, Hungary, Poland and the Baltic states, part of a campaign to entrench the narrative of friendship with the USSR and popularise the liberation myth. In Poland, the vast majority emerged in the first five years after the war, but their construction continued until the final years of communist rule heard of Polish and Soviet soldiers shown surging forward to battle side by side. Others feature a lone soldier, sometimes a celebrated Red Army hero with clenched fists and a steely gaze. The inscription, usually in both Russian and Polish, praises the sacrifice of the Red Army with no mention of the rape and looting that sometimes accompanied its westward advance or the post-war subjugation of the countries it liberated. The monuments have served as something onto which Poles could project their thoughts and feelings about the turbulent changes of the past decades. They have provided a backdrop for dates and wedding celebrations, concerts and flash mobs, nationalist demonstrations and anti-Soviet rallies, in 1956, as Red Army troops entered communist Hungary to suppress an anti-Soviet uprising, they became the setting for mass protests against Soviet domination. By the late 1980s, when communist rule began unravelling, details behind some of the 20th century's darkest episodes were coming to light. For Poles, none was starker than the 1940 massacre of more than 20,000 members of the Polish elite in Katyn, and surrounding regions, including almost half the country's officer corps. In 1990, after decades of denial, Moscow finally admitted responsibility for the atrocity which befell a Polish state dismembered by a double invasion from two totalitarian powers in accordance with a secret protocol to the Nazi-Soviet Pact of 1939. At that time, a wave of iconoclasm was sweeping Poland, Streets and squares were renamed and monuments were defaced or toppled. Across the country, empty plinths became metaphors for a vanquished regime. However, that process was stalled by local opposition and reluctance to spark conflict. According to historian Dominika Czarnecka, who has documented Poland's decommunization, fewer than a third of the monuments of gratitude had been dismantled by 2012. Many were shorn of their red stars and their hammer and sickle, or moved to cemeteries. Others were repurposed or rededicated to alternative heroes, but most remained intact. In February 1994, 
Poland and Russia signed an agreement to protect and maintain graves and places of memory on each other's territory. A joint commission drew up a list of objects in Poland dedicated to fallen Soviet soldiers. It included 415 monuments and 77 obelisks, but excluded the hundreds standing on cemetery grounds. By the late 1990s, public attention had shifted to the political and economic transformation required for membership of the EU, which Poland joined in 2004. Following its narrow victory in the 2005 election, law and justice proposed legislation to remove the monuments, but the bill didn't pass. After the party's re-election three years ago, a pliant parliament overwhelmingly backed the law. Taken together with other controversial moves, a purge of Poland's Supreme Court, a campaign against abortion, rejection of the EU's migrant quotas and deepening state ties with Poland's powerful Catholic Church, it amounts to what critics decry as a nationalist volt farce in a country long celebrated as a success story of the post-communist transition. The decommunization law is being enforced by the Institute of National Remembrance, or IPN, a government-run commission launched in 1998 to document crimes committed against Poles during the period of Nazi occupation and Soviet domination. Since law and justice assumed power, IPN's budget has risen every year, dwarfing that of the Polish Academy of Sciences. From a nondescript business centre in Warsaw's Mokotów district, it presides over a nationwide network of regional branches that organise conferences, screenings, exhibitions, concerts and social media campaigns, all directed, since 2015, towards the promotion of a positive version of Polish history. IPN is the spearhead of law and justice's counter-offensive against perceived historical myths peddled about Poland from abroad. From references to Nazi concentration camps as Polish death camps to claims about instances of Polish complicity in the Holocaust, aggressively disputed by the current government. The Institute is tasked with injecting into Poles a sense of pride about their history and a willingness to stand up and defend it against any effort to undermine the country's heroic past. In the Law and Justice lexicon, this is called historical politics. IPN's director, Jaroslav Zarek, describes its aim as showing the historical heritage that our predecessors have created, showing it in a modern form, transmitting it to the young generation, shaping views on history. Many Poles believe their country would be at the level of the world's most developed economies if it had escaped Nazi and Soviet subjugation. Critics say highlighting past crimes against Poland helps justify mistakes in the present. After the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, the newly independent states sought legitimacy in a break with the post-war past, turning to the Second World War for tales of heroism and defiance that could provide a basis for patriotism. Wartime nationalist movements, such as the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, the Latvian Legion or the Polish National Armed Forces, were revived. In Poland, law and justice is championing a set of heroes that were suppressed and silenced under communist rule. In the place of communist monuments, new state-approved murals and memorials are appearing across the country. To those Polish generals who died at the hands of the Nazi and Soviet occupiers, and increasingly, to the cursed soldiers, a motley crew of resistance fighters from the Home Army and other underground movements, 
who waged a protracted struggle against communist authorities until the early 1960s. A decade ago, these men and women were rarely discussed. Today, their names form a key part of the foundation myth law and justice is forging for Poland. Thank you for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, Hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online, but one man, he's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock? From The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kaler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret? wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. All episodes will be available on Friday, the 23rd of September. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audio long read. 
Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. I arrived in Legnitsa in late March, three days before the monument of the two soldiers and the little girl was dismantled. The area around it had been fenced off, and workers in fluorescent overalls unloaded equipment from a van. Passers-by slowed their step and exchanged comments or took pictures. In the basement office of a small accounting firm, a few steps from the former Soviet officer's house, which is now a Catholic seminary, I met Pyotr Borodach, the young nationalist, his 17-year-old sister Yulia, and his father Artur. In the driveway stood Artur's gleaming black Chrysler, embossed on the bumper were the words, We Remember, and the logo of the Polish Home Army. On the steering wheel was a white eagle on a red background, the emblem of the far-right national movement, whose local chapter Artur runs. The political party unites under one umbrella the National Radical Camp, the all-Polish youth and other far-right movements with roots in pre-war Poland. This family is energised by a sense of vindication. The election of law and justice has validated its years-long grassroots campaign to instil Polish pride and nationalism locally. For years, Artur has arranged rallies in Lednica and lectures by historians sympathetic to the nationalist cause. His own family had been exiled to Siberia in cattle trains during the war, along with hundreds of thousands of Poles. Today... They and other heroes, Artur and Piotr Revere, are being revived with new monuments and education campaigns. The past for which they hanker is a past mythologized, a past of Polish traditions, of Polish pride, of Polish heroism. And their desire to defend those myths comes at a time when European unity is strained by an influx of migrants that the Borodach family considers a threat to Polish identity on a par with collective amnesia about the past. Last November, Borodach stood shoulder to shoulder in Warsaw with 60,000 fellow Poles, from moderate law and justice supporters to football hooligans and neo-Nazis, in the largest Independence Day march since its inception in 2010. The march commemorates the day in 1918 when Poland regained statehood after 123 years of partition between the German, Austro-Hungarian and Russian empires. Polish state media, reorganised under law and justice into a platform for official propaganda, has promoted the event as a rally of patriots. It used to be a fringe gathering of Poland's extreme right, but this year, on the 100th anniversary of Poland's independence, the event is expected to go mainstream. I asked Piotr if he would get arrested today for the kind of vandalism that got him jailed in 2013. In response, he offered an example. On the 11th of November each year since 2010, he and his father have organised a bus trip for National Movement supporters to the Independence Day march in Warsaw. For the first few years, the bus would be stopped en route and searched by police officers, he said. At the march, masked men would appear seemingly out of nowhere and begin hurling rocks at the police, who would respond with tear gas to scatter the marches. Then... Law and justice came to power, he says, and all of that suddenly stopped. In April, I met Maria Zakharova, spokesperson for the Russian Foreign Ministry, in an annex of its hulking Gothic skyscraper in Moscow. Zakharova has emerged as the most prominent defender of Russia's Second World War legacy. 
Nearly a month has passed since the poisoning of Russian double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter in Salisbury, and she had just delivered a blistering public tirade against Britain's charges of Russian complicity. The way she saw it, the Skripal case fitted into the West's centuries-long campaign to weaken Russia, which includes a drive to undermine its role in the victory over fascism. The Soviet Union lost more than 26 million people in that war. No family was left unaffected. Today, the Great Patriotic War, as Russians call it, is the pillar of the national narrative, even as its core premise, Europe's liberation by the Soviet Union, is being assailed across the former communist bloc. It's not for Poland to tell us what damage communism caused. Our people went through civil war, through destitution, through dispossession, through the executions of the 1920s. Our literature describes far better than any Polish propaganda all the fear and horror of that time, Zakharova told me. We understand all that, and we have no doubt that there are people who want no further communist experiments till the end of time. As a child, Zakharova spent weekends at her grandmother's dacha outside Moscow. The highway there is flanked by dozens of monuments to those who fell, defending the capital in 1941, when Nazi forces came within 18 miles of the Kremlin. Stone faces etched into granite blocks, towering limestone obelisks shaped like bayonets, mothers bent over dying sons, and many, many eternal flames. Zakharova would watch newlyweds lay flowers beneath the monuments and marvel at the bouquets protruding from the westward-facing guns of decorative T-34 tanks sitting high atop plinths, wondering how those bouquets had got there. Decades later, the symbolism still awes her. Young people celebrating new beginnings with the memory of those who had made it possible. As she grew older, the highway was widened, New shops, cafes and petrol stations sprouted up. But as time passed and other things changed, the monuments were left untouched. Zakharova came to see them as a sacred part of the landscape. Today, she advances this perspective during her weekly press briefings at the ministry. In October 2016, after another monument in Poland was taken down, Zakharova denounced Warsaw's complete disdain for norms of behaviour accepted in civilised society. Then she broke into a smile. Moscow would receive a visit from Tetch, she announced, and Zakharova would personally greet him. That Sunday, she drove Tetch and his Kursk colleagues along that same highway to the family dacha she would frequent as a child. She treated them to homemade apple pie while her uncle laid out the Second World War-era helmets, bullets and shrapnel he had unearthed in the crater-strewn garden. Tetch gave Zakharova a star-shaped Russian tricolor sewn by his mother, who, he told her, has been grateful her whole life to the Red Army soldiers who saved her from the Nazis. There's little the Russian side can do to thwart Poland's efforts to dismantle the monuments of gratitude, Zakharova says, other than send letters of protest and mount legal campaigns, citing agreements such as the 1994 Treaty on Graves and Places of Memory. Russia has accused Poland of repeatedly violating that agreement, most notably last September, when IPN ordered the demolition of a commemorative mausoleum in the town of Czanka, where the remains of 56 soldiers had been buried. Poland says the remains were exhumed and interred at a local cemetery decades ago. Moscow contests that claim, and a legal dispute continues. Russia is also using the full force of its formidable media machine, 
which broadcasts in several languages across the former socialist bloc. On the 17th of July 2017, the same day Poland's president, Andrzej Duda, signed the decommunization project into law, Russia's defense ministry launched an online project titled The Liberation of Poland, The Price of Victory, which features scans of wartime reports from Soviet officers and Polish communists, citing widespread gratitude among Poles towards the Red Army. A preamble introduces the documents as evidence of the Polish nation's promises to immortalize the feats of Red Army soldiers with monuments and memorials and pass on a call to care for them to future generations. Zakharova sees decommunization as betrayal. She acknowledges the crimes of the Soviet regime, the brutal expropriations that followed the 1917 revolution, the Stalinist repressions, the wartime massacre of the Polish elite, but believes Eastern Europe's liberation from fascism stands apart. Those soldiers did indeed have red stars. They lived in a country that was building communism, but they were fighting fascism. And when I hear from Polish colleagues, your soldiers didn't bring us freedom, I say perhaps. And I'm even prepared to agree with that. But our soldiers brought them life. In April 2007, the former Soviet Republic of Estonia decided to relocate a monument of gratitude out of the centre of its capital city, Tallinn. The bronze statue depicts a pensive soldier with his head bowed, one hand holding a helmet and the other curled into a fist. For Estonia's sizable Russian minority, it is a symbol of the country's liberation from fascism by the Red Army. For many Estonians, it was a reminder of the country's occupation by the Soviet Union. On the 26th of April, as authorities cordoned off the monument in preparation for its removal, hundreds of ethnic Russians descended on the area. They began charging a line of police officers who responded with tear gas. Over the next three days, riots swept across Estonia in the worst case of unrest the tiny Baltic state had seen since the Second World War. Shops were looted, bus stops vandalised and roads dug up. One man died from stab wounds and a hundred others were injured. A massive wave of cyber-attacks coincided with the riots crippling government institutions. There is unlikely to be a repeat of such violence in Poland. The country's small Russian community has little influence and can still pay homage to its own heroes undisturbed. On the 9th of May, its members gathered at the Soviet military cemetery in Warsaw, where an estimated 22,000 Red Army soldiers lie buried holding photos of relatives killed in the war, as millions of their compatriots do on this day. They walked forward to lay flowers at the foot of an obelisk topped with a red star. Sergei Andreev, Russia's ambassador to Poland, looked on. A few days later, I sat down with Andreev below the palatial ceilings and crystal chandeliers of the Russian embassy, which commands a four-hectare site close to the city centre. As I ascended the steps to the vast wooden doors of the embassy, the curtains were drawn. Black cars lined the drives. Inside the splendid, cavernous halls, an eerie silence prevailed. Four staff members had recently left, expelled by Poland in solidarity with the UK over the Skripal affair. Andreev was defiant. Poland and the Polish nation exist today on this land thanks to the Red Army's victory in that war at the cost of the lives of those 600,000 soldiers and officers who died here, he told me. 
Those monuments are to them. On the wall of his office hung photos of a grandfather who died in the war and two grandparents who survived it. This is a foreign country and we cannot lay down the law here. But one thing is clear, he said, we will not forget this and we will not forgive. In the meantime, law and justice is pressing on with its decommunization campaign. Almost weekly, crowds gather in Poland's towns and cities to watch a local communist landmark dismantled. In rare instances, grassroots opposition has forced the authorities to compromise. In Mikolin, the imposing obelisk that Tetch renovated still stands. It may lose its red star and commemorative inscriptions to appease law and justice, which would help save it for now. In late May, I joined Tetch in Dombrovo Gornica, an industrial town of 120,000 and home to Poland's emasculated Communist Party. Tetch had rented a crane truck and had come to haul away several of the Red Army monuments erected across this region during the Communist era, all of which were slated for removal. Fresh from an appearance as part of a Russian delegation at the UN headquarters in Geneva, he was stepping up his campaign. In Tsarmovka, his home village, he was realising a long-held ambition, an open-air display of the monuments he had saved from destruction in the form of an educational park for local kids. He has salvaged about a dozen so far from across Poland. They are now strewn across a small field outside Tetch's farm, waiting to be raised up again. When I met him that morning, Tetch was trying to fix onto his nose a pair of spectacles with one arm snapped off. He was unshaven and had barely slept. Two weeks previously, police had interrupted a conference at Stachin University, time to coincide with the 200th anniversary of Karl Marx's birth. Officers had been tipped off that the scholarly gathering may be propagating fascism or another totalitarian system, a violation of the new law on decommunization punishable by a maximum two-year jail sentence. Tetch's main sponsor had subsequently pulled out, citing the hostile climate. Tetch had scraped together enough money to haul away two more monuments, but he could feel the screws tightening. In this toxic atmosphere, Kursk was being scrutinised and its Russian affiliates targeted. On the 17th of May, Polish border security officers had detained Tetch's girlfriend, Zakarian, near the Czech border, where she and Tetch were visiting a mutual friend. After seven days in police custody, she was deported to Russia. In a statement, the spokesman for ABW, Poland's internal security service, said Zakarian and three other Russians were trying to consolidate pro-Russian groups in Poland in a bid to promote Russia's version of history and obstruct the historical politics advanced by the Polish state. Another Kursk associate and longtime resident of Poland was also deported, this is a woman I connect my future with, Tetch told me. He had hoped Zakarian would move to Poland to help him create his educational park in Somorvka. Now she was on a blacklist and banned from returning. None of this has gone unnoticed in Dombrova Gornica. Photoshopped images of Tetch had surfaced on local forums. One featured his face on a most wanted poster from the video game franchise Grand Theft Auto, citing assault with a deadly weapon. Another showed what looked like a Soviet Navy ID carrying his photograph. 
A widely shared post carried the exact date and time of his visit and the words, See a Russian spy with your own eyes. When we pulled up beside the first monument, a small obelisk beside a residential block, a small crowd was already waiting. Several men with Polish flags on their lapels stood next to another man operating a camera on a tripod. From the balconies above, curious residents looked out. The men began heckling Tetch as soon as he stepped out of his car. Where do you get your money? they shouted. You're spitting on your nation. Stalin created Hitler. Tetch paid little attention as he wrapped a rope around the obelisk and attached it to the arm of the crane truck, while a young man with a baseball cap on backwards, who operated the remote control, looked confused by the whole spectacle. Once the work was done, Tetch turned to face his opponents. One of the men thrust a handheld camera in his face and asked him how he dare honour Poland's bloody occupiers. My uncle was a soldier in the Home Army. In 1943 he was imprisoned in Dachau and survived. In 1945 he returned to his family and two sons. In 1946 he was murdered by the communist secret police. So what monuments? he demanded. Tetch responded calmly. In 1945, my entire village, including my mother, who was then 13, was rescued from Nazi occupation by Soviet soldiers. She told me, you must respect this army. It saved us. The heated exchange lasted some 20 minutes. Tetch weathered each accusation and insult, patiently defending his stance. As we drove off towards the second monument, he told me of his determination to engage even his most hostile opponents, we have to talk. If we don't, we'll start killing each other. He hoped the men would visit Sormovka, the site of his monument park, and share their views there. Instead, the men shared a video of that exchange with Polish state TV, which included it in a 25-minute expose on Russian agents of influence, broadcast ten days later on Channel One. A large part of the programme was devoted to Tetch's work in Poland and Zakarian's deportation on charges of waging hybrid warfare on Moscow's behalf. It was noon by the time Tetch was done. He had one final errand to run before setting off on the long drive to see Zakarian in Moscow. On the way back to town, we stopped beside a small parish church in the district of Lozien. The grounds were enclosed by a green fence, above which flew the Vatican flag. Just beyond the fence, on the side adjacent to the road, stood a spectacular steel monument – Two gargantuan cloaked Soviet soldiers stood mid-step, guns slung over their shoulders. Unveiled in 1984, this is one of Poland's later monuments of gratitude. But, since it stands on parish ground, IPN, the government body that oversees decommunization, needed the priest's permission to remove it. Tetch was hoping the priest might instead agree to relinquish the monument to Kursk. When we reached the rectory... The priest was in the middle of his lunch on the veranda. He stepped out in a flannel shirt and shorts. I've handed the monument over to IPN, he said. Titch nodded and left without a word. Very soon, that magnificent steel sculpture will stand alongside other monuments deep in the forests of northern Poland. It is here, outside the village of Podborsko, that a compound codenamed Object 3001 lies. It is one of three nuclear bunkers built in Poland at the end of the 1960s with a capacity to store 160 atomic warheads. Camouflaged and hidden from prying eyes, it was known to only a dozen officials in communist Poland. 
The population at large was convinced that the country was free of such weapons. It remained a state secret until the collapse of communism, when it was handed first to the Polish army, then to the prison service, and finally to local authorities. It is here that IPN is gathering Poland's monuments of gratitude for a museum aimed at exposing the mendacity of the communist system. Within the maze of yellow corridors and reinforced steel doors, an exhibition on totalitarianism will soon open its doors. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read or find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud forward slash theguardianlongread. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.